gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller is my co-host and she's here. And this week we are joined by KJ Ramsey to talk about her book, The Lord is My Courage, Stepping Through the Shadows of Fear Toward the Voice of Love. So welcome. And, you know, just for for starters, we, we love to just have a guest share a little bit about who they are, um, you know, who you are and, and how you came to write this book. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. And I am a recovering idealist. Uh, I innately see how the world could be and spent too much of my life disappointed that it's not that way. Um, I love beauty um, in the natural world. I like to nerd out about nature and wildflowers and my new thing is mushrooms <laughs> um and yeah i am a licensed professional counselor um i work with trauma and i came to write the lord is my courage is is really a blend of all of that like this being an idealist and being a pig nerd and being a trauma therapist who's recovering from her own trauma, um, both childhood trauma and the trauma of spiritual abuse. And The Lord is My Courage is really my own um, walk with the Good Shepherd in, in the wilderness of experiencing the place that was supposed to bless actually cursing and crushing me and my husband. And um, finding that the Good Shepherd is still good for me and for us. Um, so I came to write it because I I was kind of driven out into 
into the wilderness um, through that experience. I just want to say I really um, enjoyed this book. I found it very helpful. Um, someone who's also come through some very difficult church situations. And you know, I'm, I'm a daughter of a pastor, PCA pastor, who's retired now. So I've been in a lot of interesting church situations yeah. in my life. Um, so I really appreciate it. And I've, I've en- encouraged several of my friends to get your book already. And because and, I think it'll encourage them as well. Um, Thank you. I also love Psalm 23. It's a beautiful Psalm. Um, of course, it's also very, uh, fairly well-known. People know which one you're talking about. You talk mm-hmm. about Psalm 23. Um, but why did you choose this Psalm in particular as the, the outline or spine for the book? Yeah. Yeah. For people who haven't come across my book so far, um, the structure, the actual chapters of the book are literally walking through Psalm 23. Um, I broke it down word by word and phrase by phrase. There's in, into 35 chapters. Um, and that was not the plan. Um, <laughs> I, I found my way to Psalm 23 through my own pain. And it was in, I was, I wanted to write about practicing courage and I was realizing that like, courage what happens as i show up with the little bit that i have a little bit of energy i have and resources that i have um in addition to you know this experience of religious trauma i'm disabled and i have multiple chronic illnesses and um so i have li- very i'm very aware of my limitations and what i found is as i show up with the little bit i have to offer god does somehow bless it and multiply it into more than enough for more than just me. And so I was spending a lot of time in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And in Mark, it says that Jesus looked out at the crowd before feeding them and he had compassion on them for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I thought, those are my people my readers, my, and my clients as a therapist, um, are people who feel like sheep without a shepherd who, who have not been adequately known, seen, protected, fought for. Um, those are my people and Jesus had compassion on them. And that story, uh, I just camped out there and, and kind of made that story my home And what I ended up finding was that Jesus was um, deliberately enacting Psalm 23 as he fed the 5,000. And so it was by means, by way of Jesus's compassion on the sheep without a shepherd that I kind of ended up tracing those tendrils back to the the root of the beginning of the good shepherd narrative throughout scripture in psalm 23 and then my mind has just never stopped being blown since then by it because there's just so much so much to it that's a long answer but yes jesus's compassion was the thing that brought me to psalm 23 and the story of a good shepherd it's amazing um how you can read a passage a gazillion times and then 
suddenly see something that you hadn't seen before and still be learning. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I could relate. And I know you talk a little bit about it in the book. I, I also deal with some chronic illness and it's, and even when you were talking about going to the doctor and the doing blood tests and saying, everything looks normal, you know, mm-hmm. you're like, I know everything isn't normal though. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't know it can take a, a long time for people with chronic illness to get an actual diagnosis, which is just mm-hmm. kind of frustration on top of already frustration. Yes, um, it's so painful. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's very difficult, but I, I would guess that like me, I, I had moments of like praying to the Lord saying, I don't know what good could come from this, you know, cause just mm. it, it's for me, it was so difficult for children. I, you know, I was so limited and, and yet then I actually see the Lord's work in my life through, you know, the difficulty in in amazing ways, unexpected ways. So what, what does it mean that the Lord is my courage? Yeah. So, you know, it's for sure a play on the beginning of Psalm 23 with the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Um, The Lord is my courage, you know, at the heart for me that I keep coming back to is the wonder of our union with Christ, that courage really is practicing trust that we do have a good shepherd who is seeking us and with us every moment of every day. Because we have been united to Christ by the Spirit, like there's no moment in my life in which I am alone, in which I am forsaken. And um, courage is practicing believing that and living as though that is true, receiving that that is true, even when I feel most forsaken. And even when I cry out like Jesus on the cross, echoing Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, so there's there's a lot more to it, but the Lord is my courage, is my confession that when I, though I do not feel brave and though I am quite weak, uh, there is one who dwells within me who has the trust that I need and who confers that trust on me and whose name as beloved is also my name. And because of that person who lives within me, I can live my life differently. And so can you. And you just mentioned beloved. And I, I like how you start the book with beloved. Um, so what does it mean and why does it matter that we are beloved by God? Well, it means so much. But I think to take us back to what I do talk about in the beginning of the book, I, I talk about Jesus's baptism. And how before Jesus had done anything amazing, uh, before he turned water into wine, before he healed anyone, the first of all, he consented to be baptized in a baptism of repentance. So, like, that's strange. 
because it's God. And does God need to repent? That's super interesting, right? Um, Jesus steps into the water and he's dunked backwards in his cousin John's hands and the the heavens open and the spirit descends like a dove. And the father says, you are my beloved with you. I am well pleased. And we are given this declaration that Jesus is loved, not for what he has done or what he will do, but for who he is. And because we are connected to Christ inextricably in our union with Christ by the Spirit. That is true for us too. So our place in God's heart has nothing to do with what we do or don't do, how strong we are, how weak we are, but that we have been named. Um, belovedness is given to us. And it can't be taken away. And I think that receiving that is a lifetime's work. It's also a life-changing work that like, we have a secure place in God's heart, no matter what. Being beloved changes how I live right here and now, and it changes what I do. And what I don't do, um, and it becomes a bit of a circle that like, because I'm beloved, I can be brave. Um, Because I'm beloved, I can show up. Because I'm beloved, I don't have to be, I don't have to stay being afraid because God's with me. So that's, those are some thoughts on it. I could probably talk about being beloved all the time, all day, all day long, but. So I have a couple quotes I wanted to to read from your book and then ask a question about them. So many of us don't really sense and experience that the Lord is our shepherd because we have rarely been shepherded by the people who stand with us in the dirt of our distress. And and next one, maybe we're sheep who need a shepherd because there are so many predators both outside and within the church who will devour our vulnerability, wool, weakness, wounds, and all. How how do we ex- how do our experiences with leaders influence our beliefs about um, our relationship with God? Yeah, it's really a matter of the way God made our bodies. So beliefs are built on experience and. Um, even our, and your emotions, whether you think you're an emotional person or not, whether you demonize your emotions or not, you dismiss them or not, you call them liars or not, your emotions are actually just there. And they are the energy inside you that are moving you into a story um, and moving you into either connection or self-protection. And so, our emotional response to the world that carries us into the story of our lives is built on our past experiences and how they are prospecting and projecting on a subconscious level in us. Um, 
how much we can trust the people around us and the world around us to be a safe place for us to show up. And so when it comes to our experience of leaders, and I think of when I write about shepherding figures, I'm writing not just, not primarily about pastors, but also about parents, about caregivers, about coaches, like anyone in a position of relational authority or care um, is inherently a shepherd. And so our experience of these people in our lives who hold power and the way that they either welcome us, are safe, are attuned to us and our needs, responsive to our needs um, or not, shapes our body's expectation of how safe we are to show up in our lives today and tomorrow. Um, so that's more like the the way God made your body to actually receive a story based on the people around you. I found that really helpful um, in your book and especially the various places that you talked about um, or incorporated your uh, your research as a, a therapist and your own research and in, in in helping yourself with the various um, things that you've been through physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, and tying all that together. It was just very a lot of good resources in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, another quote that I liked you you said. Uh, in the book, I started realizing that to be strong and let my heart take courage, I needed to wait on the Lord, not as one who was punishing me with pain and expecting me to be stoic about it, but as the shepherd coming to care for me. I needed to encounter my emotions, not as signs of failure, but as cries for connection. Uh, How does changing how we view God affect our understanding of suffering and struggles? Oof. I mean, it changes everything. I think that witnessing the reality of the incarnation that in Christ God has become human in a real body that cried and bled and died um, changes how we experience our own humanity as a holy place. Um, And I just don't think most of us have been given permission or room to imagine how real the incarnation is. Um, Most of us, I mean, I, I grew up, I grew up in the PCA um, myself. Uh, We mentioned that before we started recording And I was not taught that my body was a holy place. I was not taught that there was anything good about my emotions. Um, There were good things about my childhood church experience, but I, there were, there wasn't a connection made between this God who came down to the ground and what's, what it is like to walk on this earth myself. Um, And I think that there's just so much more room to receive and remember and relish and extend the presence of God in our everyday lives um, than a lot of us are experiencing because we've been 
taught to dismiss our bodies. I'd like you to talk about enemy mode and how Mm. does it affect us in our lives and in our churches? Yeah. So enemy mode is um, the neurotheologian Jim Wilder, his term for really what I would call being in a stress state um, in your nervous system. And so to begin to explain enemy mode, I'd just like to point out that whether you are aware of it or not, when your body is noticing, your nervous system is noticing that there are more cues of danger within you and around you than cues of safety, your body sinks into a state of stress to protect you from harm and protect you from death. And this is happening under the surface of your awareness all the time. And um, so there's these there's an assessment, an evaluation, a surveillance of how safe you are all the time. And this is not crazy psychology. This is just how God made your body. Um, that safety actually really matters. So enemy mode is what happens when our nervous systems sense more danger than safety in the in the environment around us, particularly relationally. And I think that often, um, I just think it's important to point out, we are going into this enemy mode um, without realizing it. So when you don't feel adequately safe and you're in a state of stress, um, you experience the people around you as threats to your survival. And they, you, you experience them as enemies, um, as others who don't have your good in mind. And sometimes they don't actually have your good in mind. And sometimes they aren't actually safe. Um, so enemy mode is the body's inherent uh, strategy to survive. Um, but what happens is that sometimes... Uh, Actually, a lot of the time, I would say, Um, because so many of us in the American church and in American culture in general live so unaware of our bodies and the effect of stress on our lived experience. I think a lot of us are living in enemy mode all of the time. Um, we say that the church is a family, but our bodies don't experience it as a safe and healthy family. Um, so enemy mode is pointing out this innate experience of the body that this doesn't feel safe. The people around me are not maybe seeking my good and each other's good. And my body is springing into action to protect me from potential harm. Um, That's the beginning of talking about enemy mode. There's a lot more, but. You know, it just, just while I'm hearing you talk, and it's things that I've thought about, it's things I know we've we've got a Facebook group and, you know, some of the sorts of things. But I think one of the most difficult things I know for me personally is when the very place where you're supposed to be, feel safest and most loved and 
And all of these things end up being the place where you experience the greatest hurt. And I have been treated just in just talking about Christians in general, I've been treated far worse by Christians than any non-Christian. And it's, you know, it, it is, it, it really does a number on you on trust and, and safety and all of the things that you're talking about. So. Yeah. And I think that's, it's really, we're just recognizing what's actually true um, of our experience. And I think um, abuse and great evil get perpetuated when the church does not name the reality of our experience with one another. Um, so and talking about enemy mode is just a way to be honest about that. A lot of times we treat each other more like enemies than friends and family. Um, we treat each other as competition rather than a chorus worshiping God together. And, and our bodies know that that is true, whether our mouths and our minds are acknowledging it or not. And our bodies are living like it's true, whether we acknowledge it or not. So if we can be honest with ourselves about the reality our bodies are experiencing, then we can change that reality and create more safety with each other and treat one another as beloved rather than bullying each other into submission and um, better behavior. I really appreciated the in your book that you you spend a lot of time or you spend time both on kind of addressing what's wrong and how to, to recognize, but then also um, how to, how to move forward into, um, I think you call it wholeness in, in mm-hmm. a place in the book, but encourage, like it's both the recognition and understanding of and addressing how to, to say, how to put to words what's wrong with our, in our lives and our bodies and our relationships, but also then um, what we can do as well. So I, I like the balance in your book. Mm, thank you. Um, one of the things that you wrote, another quote that I liked, um, you say, wholeness is the aim of a person who is practicing the willingness to let every part of their body, story, and life align with the truth of how beloved they are. How can we find wholeness when we've been broken by abuse or difficult circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I think like we were just talking about, there is great power in naming the harm. Um, You know, uh, confession leads to repentance. Well, confession isn't just what we have done wrong. It's telling the truth. It is telling the truth of what we have lived and where we're headed. Um, and our experience of reconciliation with God, um, I do think, begins with honesty about where we have been and what has happened to us. So um, I think the, begin- the beginning of healing from harm and healing from trauma is naming that it actually was harmful and that that harm continues to affect us. Um, And, you know, I think uh, there's a lot more about the path of healing 
in the book. So I'll leave, I'll leave some of the rest of that answer to like, go read the book. But um, I think there's a great beginning in, in naming the harm and, and learning to honor the physical lived experience of being treated less than beloved and how that has shaped our bodies um, into positions of self-protection um, because we had to do that to survive. The, the vehicle of wholeness is going to be like learning how to bless the body that you have um, and the way that that body has protected you to today and, and is asking through your symptoms of stress and your symptoms of depression and anxiety and panic attacks, et cetera, to let your story matter and let healing happen. You know, I'll I'll tell you just on a a personal note, one of the things I realized just in the church stuff is almost like I felt like I wasn't allowed to have boundaries Mm -hmm. in the church. (laughs) This did great damage to me and getting some really good counseling and somebody actually kind of giving me permission to have boundaries made such a huge difference. Just, I, I can't even express in words how much, especially when it was somebody that was literally hurting me over and over again. And anyways, I was just thinking about that as you were talking. Uh, yeah. And I just want to say to that, um, a big part of what I talk about in my book is that courage is something we hold in common. There's a reason that we need one another to give us permission to choose the good. Um, courage is never an individual practice where we have to muster up the capacity to have a, to hold a good boundary or to seek God in the middle of pain. Courage is something that we confer on each other um, to choose what is right and true and beautiful. Uh, even when it's extremely hard and costly, we actually need each other like your therapist giving you permission to return to your boundaries. That is part of what courage is um, in this shared experience. And actually did kind of, I hadn't thought of it like that at the time, but now that I am, it really did feel a bit like that, having courage. Mm-hmm. Um I have have another little quote. You say faith without feet that follow Jesus's steps into the dark valleys of suffering is no faith at all. It's spiritual bypassing. So can you talk about that? What is spiritual bypassing? Yeah. um, So the psychologist, John Wellwood was the first to coin the term spiritual bypassing. And basically spiritual bypassing is when we attempt to claim the goodness of God um, without honoring our good bodies and how they are experiencing our lives. Um, Spiritual bypassing is when we use spirituality and spiritual truths to walk around experiencing our pain. Um, The sad part is that when we bypass our pain and our problems, we're actually 
bypassing our greatest comfort of God and other human beings meeting us in the midst of what hurts. Um, when we try to just tell ourselves to have faith or that God is using this for good, um, we end up like stepping away from the place where we're going to experience God's goodness in um, letting our tears be witnessed and letting our bodies be held um, in the wonder of this silent communion with other people who have hurt. Like I think of last night, um, we hung out with some other survivors of spiritual abuse in our, we all went to different churches. We all live in the area here and we sat there and we shared stories and a lot of us have big questions about what church can look like for us moving forward. And we didn't receive each other's questions or stories with, with anxiety. We listened and we let our hearts break for each other. And it was in that silent receiving of each other's stories that we felt this deep comfort and this deep um, kinship and communion, which is what the church truly is at her heart, that we are, we are one and your pain is my pain and your joy is my joy. Um, we miss experiencing that if we're not willing to sit in the dark together and listen and let our hearts break. Um, so spiritual bypassing is stepping away from that sacred place, um, usually out of anxiety because it, it doesn't, it's hard. It doesn't feel great to feel our pain. Um, and it also like when we feel our pain, we're required to do something about it. And a lot of us lack the courage to do things about our pain and about the pain in our communities. So those are, there's a lot more to it, but spiritual bypassing is stepping away from the Savior meeting us in our pain. What encouragement would you give to those who are listening who are going through or have been through spiritual abuse? Well, my first encouragement would be if you're listening to this and you're wondering if you did experience spiritual abuse and you might you might be bristling against the word, the phrase, the label. Um, because I, I just want to name that a lot of us struggle to, to name it. <laughs> and um, because when abuse comes at the hands of the church or your family, um, to name it, as abuse feels like you are betraying that there was anything good there at all. And that feels like you're going to lose your belonging that like, are you even part of the church at all? Are you part of your family at all? Um, so I just first want to name for those who are listening that it does take courage to name the harm that you've experienced. And um, you might be at a point where it's, it's really terrifying to say that what happened to you was abuse. And you've probably had people around you who were abusing you or who were complicit 
in the abuse, gaslighting your experience and making you think that it wasn't really that bad. Um, and that itself, people dismissing and minimizing what you experience is itself an indicator of the abuse. But I, I just, I want people to know that it's really hard to, to name it um, because the word abuse is scary and it holds a lot of connotations. And the word trauma as well is very hard for us initially often to affix to our own experiences and yet listen to the story your body is telling you. Um, Listen to the truth that your broken heart is saying. Um, Listen to the sensations of panic and anxiety that are coming up in you when you're around people from this church or you try to step back into a church's doors. Your body's telling you something grievous and awful happened. And it really was that bad. Um, so listen and begin listening to your body. And um, as you are able, I, I pray that you would have the courage to name what happened to you rightly, that it wasn't just church hurt. Um, it's, it's a term I think that's kind of lets us all off the hook. It didn't just hurt. You were harmed. And um, naming your harm is going to be the beginning of you getting to heal all the way through from it. So I hope that you will. I think that would be what I encourage folks who've experienced this to do. Name what happened to you rightly. And when you begin to name it, you will begin to receive the remedy for what happened to you. We've, we've talked about spiritual abuse a lot on this topic in large part because we um, have so many of our listeners, you know, are asking questions and, you know, it used to be, um, you grew up in the church as did I, as did Rachel. I, I never heard any talk about that, you know, years mm-hmm. ago. Um, and so I, I know one girl in our group said she became a Christian kind of later uh, in her teenage years and ended up in a church and thought, well, this must be normal. This must be what the church is like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and didn't really realized initially, and I, I, wonder, I do wonder how many people are, are in that sort of situation that that's been their normal in the church. Have, have you talked to people like that, that just because you talked right now about being able to name what it was, and I think that that's very hard for people if their whole normal has yes. been living under spiritual abuse. Well, one of the hugest ways that we, that spiritual abuses, um, perpetuated is in a system of beliefs, uh, really a bastardization of Christianity, where our bodies are treated as bad, as the barrier to belief. And I say that because so many of us were raised to not respect what our bodies are telling us about what we're experiencing. And we were raised to treat our emotions like the enemy that are that's keeping us from holiness and obedience. And um, what a what a delightful strategy of Satan 
to co-opt a whole generation of people to silence our bodies, good signals telling us this is not safe, this is not good, you are being diminished as a person, to have a system of belief where we are, where you're like goodness and you're uh, standing in your community is dependent on like overcoming your feelings actually is abusive and is what keeps us in a position where we're not paying attention enough to what our bodies are telling us about how safe and awful we feel in the church because we were taught that listening to our bodies was sin. So I think so many people only begin to wake up to how much they have been harmed and are being harmed in church communities and spiritual communities um, when their bodies shout, begin to shout so loud they cannot stop listening um, through symptoms of immense depression, debilitating anxiety, um, through sickness. I think a lot of times people uh, begin to wake up to something's wrong when they get super sick. Um, various chronic illnesses, intense, strange infections, like our bodies are trying to, they're begging us to pay attention and to treat ourselves and others like we're actually beloved. Um, so yeah, I, I just went a little bit on a sermon there, but I think a lot of us don't realize it because we've been trained not to pay attention. Yeah, bodies. we've we've even just kind of connected to this, seen the damage that some of the quote unquote biblical counseling yeah. movement did in some churches where people are literally being told that, well, if you have anxiety or depression, it's because you need to repent. And yep. just that such incredible and that itself is damage. abusive. Yes. Mm. I mean, I can't I, I could go on about that all day, the damage. Um that all of that did in the church is just it's it's, massive. Oh, so, 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 so much. So um, anyways, I, I appreciate you talking about all this. I know so many of our listeners that this is things that they have been through too. Um, And I know that this book will Mm -hmm. offer some encouragement and, and assistance in being able to think through some of these things. So we, we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for making space for those kinds of stories, because there's a lot of us. There are so many of us who have been harmed in the church. And um, I think that it's we who have been harmed who are going to help um, the church become more holy, become a place where we treat each other with dignity and respect. We treat each other like our shared mutual name really is beloved. Um, Mm -hmm. So thank you for making space for people who have been harmed. So is is there, um, I know you do have a website. Is there um, any, anywhere else I can point people to that want to follow you? Yeah, you can find me and my books, this one, The Lord is My Courage, um, at kjramsey.com. And then I'm also on social media at, at kjramseywrites. And um, I'm most active on Instagram. And then I occasionally say stuff on Twitter and then go away. <laughs> but 
people can find me across social media there. Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll link all your social media and, and also your website along with your book. So thank you. Well, thank you um, for our listeners. I'll link the book in the episode notes, recommend going to pick it up. You can get it on Kindle. I know some of our people like that. That's what I did. So um, yeah. we will see our, the rest of you next week or in two weeks. 